Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 4. Over the next weeks leading to Easter, we will be working quickly through the gospel of John, and so we will not address every verse, but in order to arrive at John 20, we must move with haste. So you'll forgive me uh, for any oversights. You may want to join us um, during our Lenten lunches, which will be starting soon in the first Wednesday in March, where we'll be covering chapters 13 through 17. It's known as the Upper Room Discourse, but that's where we'll handle that very important chunk of material in which Jesus gives his last instructions to his disciples, just to give you a sense of how we're going to go over the next few weeks. Let's give our attention to John chapter 4. We're reading verses 1 through 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. 
But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come as those who are thirsty and hungry, and we can only be satisfied, and our thirst can only be quenched by the spirit that you give, by the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And so direct us to him, and we ask, Lord, that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. On the surface, they really have nothing in common. One was a teacher of Israel, a professional theologian, you could say, who was devoted to the Jewish nation's life and renewal. The other was a Samaritan, a morally compromised woman who was a self-identifying follower of a polytheistic religion with a dash of Judaism thrown into it. The two are seemingly worlds apart. But yet Jesus, over the course of two private conversations, unites them. He says that it's inappropriate to admit any difference in their need, that both needed something new from God. Nicodemus, the religious professional, needed to be born again. The Samaritan woman needed living water. Yes, the woman was controlled by misplaced affections, a life that was on fire and burning down. But the man Nicodemus was afflicted by misplaced wisdom and a misplaced confidence. Both were alienated from God. Both require the same remedy, what it means to be born from above. And it's crucial for us in the church to see and to value this vital truth that every human being, not just some really bad ones, are in need of Jesus. That this is the greatest and fundamental human need. That it doesn't just apply to some, it applies to all. And this is the grand point that Jesus makes across chapters three and four. And this morning in the brief moment that we have before coming to the Lord's table, We'll look at Jesus' exchange with this broken woman, fractured by life, and we'll consider what it looks like when we encounter Jesus. Again, asking the question is, what does that encounter look like and what shape does it take? And there's four things this morning that I draw your attention to. First, as we look at verses one through 15, when we encounter Jesus, he sets out the qualifications Jesus asked a woman, a Samaritan woman, for a drink from Jacob's well. Now, it was unusual for a Jewish man to pass through Samaria. Observant Jews typically bypassed it, just finding it better and easier to circumvent it in order not to become unclean. The problem with Samaria reaches all the way back into the 720s when the northern tribes of Israel were exiled by the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria came through conquering and then sent the northern tribes to live in today what is northern Iraq and Iran. 
And then he resettled other peoples from inside of his empire into this region we call Samaria. These new settlers brought their various gods with them. But then due to some turbulence and problems for the king of Assyria, he sent one Israelite priest back to the region of Samaria. And he instructed that priest to instruct these new settlers in the ways of the law. And so what resulted was a hot mess, a polytheistic blend of religion in which there were all the gods that the people had brought with them. And then there were some teachings of Judaism, all shaken together, syncretized perfectly. And so you can imagine, for many Jews of that day who were seeking to hold fast to their faith and ancient traditions and to restore them, that the Samaritans were looked down upon. But Jesus turns up at a Samaritan well, and he asks a woman at noon for a drink. She says, why are you asking me for a drink? It's inappropriate. You Jews don't have anything to do with us. And then in verse 10, note what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's two things to note about this very brief exchange. First, to be qualified for God's kingdom has nothing to do with gender, it has nothing to do with race, it has nothing to do with class, and it has nothing to do with our personal gains and losses, particularly our failures. That Jesus doesn't discriminate that just as he put down the same strictures on Nicodemus, he comes and puts the same qualifications for this woman, that he welcomes sinners to come to him. He doesn't ask that sinners qualify themselves for this conversation, but rather he's actually seeking out this woman. In all of the disaster of her life, five husbands and another man later, here she is in all of her glory, and Jesus is pursuing her. And this is essential for us to hold on to as the church. This woman represents the ultimate outsider. She is about as far away from God as anyone could be in Jesus's small world. And but Jesus comes to her. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't hold prejudice. Now the second thing that we can note here is that to be qualified for God's kingdom, we must simply ask. Notice what Jesus says again. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would have known intuitively to ask him and he would have given you something far greater than what he asked of you. And this is where for us as the church today, it's so crucial that we not add to Jesus's free gift. All Jesus says that we must do is ask. He says that we must believe. And here he simply uses a more simple verb. He says, you simply ask and I will give. And so we're not to attach conditions. We're not to attach steps. We're not to attach techniques. We're not to attach spiritual disciplines to what it means to be qualified for the kingdom of God. All those things can help us perhaps in our communion with God, 
But what it means to be qualified for God's kingdom is simply to be a person who asks him, who looks to him in our brokenness and in our need and says, God, help me. Will you help me? Will you come to me? This is what Jesus is laying out as the qualifications. We are to ask. And so it brings a question to you, and it brings a question to me. Have you asked him? And then perhaps more profoundly for the church, are you asking him? The living water is pointing to the Holy Spirit here in the passage. And of course, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we have been filled by the Spirit as those who have believed in Jesus Christ, and yet we are also continuously being filled by the Spirit. We are to pray that we be strengthened by the Spirit. And so what it means to believe in Jesus is to ask. It's to be the kind of person who asks. And many people, particularly sensitive souls, oftentimes struggle with They'll say, Chuck, I don't know if I really believe, because sometimes I can tell myself I believe, and I'm not sure I really believe. And they get turned around in this dynamic in which it's like a cat chasing its tail. How do I know if I believe? Perhaps a better way to frame it is how we know if we believe is are you asking? Are you asking him to fill you? Are you asking him to meet your need? Are you asking him to forgive your sins? Are you asking him for this living water? That the Holy Spirit is a constantly flowing well and he seals all the promises of God and he promises that well will never go dry. And so look to him. The qualification is simple. You ask. You'll note in verse 15 that this woman, in the middle of all of her disaster, says this, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's loads of incomprehension going on. She doesn't get it in so many ways. But what does she do? She asks. She doesn't hold up in her pride. She doesn't cower underneath her shame. Rather, she asks, sir, give me this water. And that is to be the prayer of the church. Jesus, give me that water. That's what I need. And she recognizes it. And the question for us is, do we? Do we get it? Even in incomprehension, even in not fully getting it, because when she asked, even though it was a faulty question or a faulty request, Jesus does go to work. She wants what Jesus is offering even though she doesn't fully understand it yet. And so ask. That's what an encounter with Jesus requires. But the second piece of this is that when we encounter Jesus, he discloses our secrets. This Samaritan woman in all of her life, she didn't get it, but she did ask. And then Jesus takes her a step further in verses 16 through 18. It's almost abrupt how the conversation turns. She says, hey, give me this water. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Many people are puzzled by the, the order of the conversation. 
But Jesus was saying something appropriate. Go get your husband and bring him here for what I'm about to tell you. It was a decent request. Salvation has always been a household matter in the Bible. She, of course, then answers, and Jesus had different reasons for giving his instruction. Her response, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman acknowledges, I have no husband, and she was holding a pretty dark secret that she had had five Typically, you don't go through the course of life with five husbands and then one that you are living with now who is not your husband without some pretty serious moral compromise. And here in front of this Jewish teacher, she's been exposed. Jesus has disclosed the secrets of her heart. She asks, and this is where he goes. And friends, this is what we can expect that when we encounter Jesus, there will be a deep and yet delicate confrontation that takes place. And it will take place time and time and time again. It will happen continuously. That the grace of God will disturb us and it will also comfort us, but it will convict us. That if we are dealing in a grace of God that only comforts us and never disturbs us, then we're not encountering the real Jesus. Conviction and comfort travel together in the Christian gospel. This woman has her secrets disclosed, and yet she doesn't cower in shame, and neither must you, because the one who discloses those secrets is the one who is qualified to handle them, to destroy them, to bring them to an end through his work at the cross. The third piece of this is that when we encounter Jesus, he also counters our objections. As you follow through the passage in verses 19 through 26, you'll see that the woman, after the disclosure of her sins, she begins to resist Jesus. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She says something true. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She speaks of Mount Gerizim there in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so she is bringing the Samaritan objection that we Samaritans have truth about God and you Jews claim that our truth is invalid. This is a formal theological objection that she has presented on the other side of her disclosure. Now, this is the way that theological debate often goes. It's a proxy war (laughs) in which we're actually hiding the shame and the guilt that we feel and we decide to turn it into a theological debate and it's not really about God at all. Jesus then answers her and says, you've misunderstood something because salvation was always to be from the Jews. What he is referring there to is Genesis chapter 12 where God blesses Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and your descendants and through you and your descendants, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth. 
Salvation was never a property of the Jews, something that they were to hold on to, but rather it was to come through the Israelite nation to the world. And this is why Jesus himself becomes a Jew, why he is an Israelite, because he is the light of the nations who would bring light to all the nations of the earth. And then Jesus explains something in verse 23. If you'll follow with me. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And I would suggest to you that that spirit should be capitalized S and truth should be as well. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is capital S spirit and those who worship him must worship in capital S spirit and capital T truth. Jesus says the hour has arrived where worship is not going to take place in Samaria, in their temple, or in Jerusalem, in their temple. When speaking of worship in spirit and truth, Jesus is redefining the temple system. And he's saying that worship takes place in and through him. That it happens in the capital S spirit and the capital T truth. And he's drawing all attention to himself as the one who mediates the spirit and the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus here is not referring to inward worship with outward forms as often has been the mistake in interpreting this passage. But rather he's saying that the location where worship happens is it happens in his name through the spirit of God being present the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. And here Jesus does something unique, is that he does exclude all other options. He meets this woman who was wrapped up in polytheistic worship of many gods with some truth of the living God. And Jesus is not scared to say that all of that is a God that you can't know. We worship the God we know and you worship him in spirit and truth because Jesus is claiming to be the unique bridge who can bear the sins of the world and actually restore our alienation, that he can bring an end to it, that he can end the alienation and restore us into communion with the living God, that we can worship him. And it is, of course, comfortable in the first century world to approach the subject of religion as if it's a la carte, that you can have a piece here, you can have a piece there. And it's perhaps the easy way to approach the difficult subject of religious faith. But Jesus offers a different answer. And he offers a different answer because he knows there is a need that none of the other religious faiths of the world share. That Jesus identifies a problem for the religious and he identifies a problem for the rebellious and he points to one need that is found in him, that he's the bearer of sins and that worship of God is only restored through and in him, that in the spirit and in the truth, that he's the unique way of restoring that communion. And so our varied approaches to God, when we encounter Jesus, as convenient and as appealing as it is in our own day and culture, it falls away because Jesus is the way. He's the truth. 
He's the one with the life. He has living water. He alone brings the salvation that God has promised. The final piece to this as we encounter Jesus is that we will inevitably be sent out as his witnesses. You'll notice a turn in the conversation after Jesus finishes speaking with the woman in verse 29, she's sent back to the village. And she says this, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Such a fascinating sermon. One line. Come see the man who exposed all of my shame. Because you can guarantee in that little village, everybody knew it. (laughs) They had all been talking about it. And she says, come see the man who exposed all that, who knew that. He's a prophet of some sort, and he may be the promised one who we've read about in Deuteronomy 18. Perhaps it's him. And then what happens? They went out, and they were coming to him. And the following verses unfold that they believed. They began to trust. They began to ask, give me that living water. And why? Why did they begin to ask? Because someone's life had been changed and they began to proclaim. And you'll notice that this is not a technical evangelism. The Samaritan woman was not equipped with apologetic seminars and all the fancy training that we can receive. What was she? Friends, she was a witness. She had experienced what it meant to encounter the living God in Jesus Christ. She had become a worshiper of him. He had done something to her, and she began to invite, come and see, come and meet this one. And we can get so lost in what it means to do the work of evangelism, and it's all very simple. It's very simple because it's about proclaiming the realities that we have encountered what we know to be true about God in Jesus Christ and how he has befriended us and how we didn't deserve it. And we're more expressing the praise of God to others and inviting them to come and see, to taste and find, to know that God fills the longing soul. That's what the witness does. That's what happens when we encounter Jesus. And Jesus is inviting us into that kind of sustained encounter where he does instruct us to ask and that we ask and we find satisfaction. That he will disclose the secrets of our heart, that he is sufficient to counter all objections that we may have and that he will send us out into his world to publish the good things he has done for us to become invitational, doxological Christians, announcing the praises of God, being a witness of what God has done for us. That's the shape that the encounter with Jesus takes place, how it takes place, and what it looks like. And so don't hold him off. Ask him and let him come and bring you living water. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we recognize that you are a good and gracious God and that you satisfy the hungry soul 
and that you grant us to drink from a fountain of water that wells up to eternal life. We ask God that you will beat back our pride that so often refuses our great need. We ask God that you will beat back our shame that so often leads to objections that also cause us to beat back our need. And may we come like this woman and we, may we say, sir, give us some of this water to drink. And may we be needy and may we be desperate and may we recognize that only you can give this water that leads to eternal life. We give you thanks for all your work in our lives and we recognize that as we worship you in spirit and in the truth of Jesus, that we truly encounter you and that you welcome us to come as children to make our requests and to present our petitions. And so hear us this morning as we, as we pray on behalf of your world, as we pray on behalf of your church, as we intercede on our own behalf, asking that you provide our needs. And so this morning we pray for our ministry partners and we remember Reform University Fellowship, Tommy and Nikki Park, and also Julia Wilcoxon. And we ask God that you would bless our brothers and our sisters as they minister on the campus at the University of North Florida. Use them as they proclaim the good news of Jesus to those from across the spectrum. And Lord, as they preach Jesus, may people find in him life. May they drink living water. And will you use the Park family to introduce people to this great knowledge, to mature them in the knowledge of Jesus as well, and so continue to bless them and provide for their every need. And Father, we're mindful to pray for all those who care for our city. We thank you that they bear the burdens, many burdens that we daily don't have to think of, and you instruct us to pray for them. And so we pray for our mayor, Lenny Curry. We pray for our city council. We pray for all local law enforcement and we ask that you will bless them, that you give them wisdom, that they would know how to conduct the affairs of our civic life together, that they would be guided by wisdom and justice and all truth. Help them in their task and provide for their every need. And Lord, we pray this morning for all those in our congregation who are sick in body or in mind. And we ask God that you will draw near to give them comfort, that you will heal and restore them, that you will renew them as only the God who raises the dead can. Remind them that they're not forsaken, that you never leave behind those you love in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of their great pains and afflictions. And so we pray for our sister Beverly Klein. We pray for Branson Bishop. We pray for Hector Harima, for John Groh Jr., for Ryan Reeves, and for Wayne Noble. Draw near and bring your comfort and your healing and restoring powers. We remember this morning our youth ministry and the children and youth that you have entrusted to our care. And we give thanks, God, for the way that you've multiplied and blessed this ministry, 
We give thanks for Alec and Riley and their tireless efforts to care for our teenagers and our students. And we ask God that you will bless their work this weekend as they teach and instruct and guide our students to drink from the well of living water. Transform and change lives, provide for them in safety, bless them in every way as they prepare to return tomorrow. And we continue this morning by praying for the smaller children that you have entrusted to our care. They too are members of your flock that you have set apart and you've designated that they would be the generation to come. And may these little ones never remember a day apart from Jesus. May they only remember from their earliest years saying the words, sir, give me some of this living water. And may they cry out to him from their youngest days. May they not know the disaster of the Samaritan woman. Will you protect them and keep them? And would they know what it is to need Jesus as they are taught in this place? And would they delight in the fact that they were raised in the church and not find it a source of shame, but rather to proclaim your praise, to publish your glory throughout their lives because of your goodness to them? We especially thank you for the safe arrival of George Perry Williams, born to Robbie and Meredith on February 14th. Continue to provide for the Williams family as they serve in Okinawa, Japan, and bless this little guy that he would grow great in your sight. May he grow in wisdom and in stature. May he grow in favor with you and all people. Would he serve you all of his days? We ask God that you would uphold our children's ministry and bless it, that it would bring forth fruit pleasing to you. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we offer these prayers. And it's in his name who taught us to pray. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.